You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. We've got a new friend, Dr. Michelle Speranza, to chat with today. And we connected at the ICA Council on Upper Cervical Care Forum uh, just a couple, you know, it was probably six weeks ago at this point. And it's like it's like this with the upper cervical world. Like when you meet people and you have a lot of mutual friends and you might not know each other, but like you may have heard a name uh, and then you connect, it's like, we have so many things in common already that you become fast friends. And it's kind of nice thing about going to upper cervical events and like networking within your profession is this is the place in the world where there's people that think like you and, and value the things you do and prioritize and live the practice experience that you do. So it's definitely worth getting to events. And I'm going to just plug the Blair annual uh, right here off the jump because here we are, we're recording in mid July. That's the end of September uh, in Las Vegas got an awesome lineup of speakers and, you know, the Blair conference is always a fun time. So if you haven't been to an event in a while, get to that one. You don't have to be an upper cervical doctor. You don't even have to be a Blair chiropractor, but come check it out and hang out with us and learn more about this stuff. But anyway, that being said, Dr. Michelle Speranza and I are going to talk about um, a few topics that were discussed at the forum. Uh, But doc, I'd love for you to just explain who you are, where you practice, give us a little bit of background, how you got into upper cervical care, and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, th- thanks, John. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. And it was a pleasure meeting you, uh, like you said, at the forum, a few, uh, well, I guess, six weeks ago or so. And you're absolutely right. The beauty with, I think, upper cervical practitioners, upper cervical work is that you kind of form this this uh, unique community, this unique family. And so you just kind of bond over similar interests. Um, so like you said, um, my name's uh, Dr. Michelle Spranza, and I'm a pre- upper cervical doc in Airdrie, Alberta. Um, I practiced the Nuka technique and I was first introduced to upper cervical work um, actually in my one of my final trimesters at school. Um, I really didn't have any clue about upper cervical work. I didn't go to a school where it had a super strong presence. And so it was honestly by chance that I signed up for a weekend elective. I needed the credits. It was um, uh, upper cervical adjusting and I was like, oh, I'm not super confident in this area. I'm thinking it's going to be the kind of good old diversified or how to better assess it. And um, it actually ended up being Dr. Carrie Johnson, who is a board certified NUCA doc in Minnesota, um, who was teaching the elective. And I remember sitting in that first class and he's throwing up x-rays and he's talking about lines and speaking a completely different language than anything I had ever heard of, uh, talking, talking about lateralities and lower angles and all of this stuff and showing us x-ray views that we've never seen. Um, we've never looked at a nasium or a vertex. And so I don't even know what I'm looking at on the screen. So already I'm kind of confused. I'm like, I don't know about this. Like, am I wasting my time? Uh, like, did, did I just give up a weekend of where I could have been doing studying for boards or doing something else, uh, to sit through this? I'm like, okay, well, I'm getting the electives. So he kind of goes on, we, we go through it. Um, and then at the end of the first day, he starts talking about some of the research and what's been going on in the upper cervical work. And in NUCA, one of the big studies that often gets referenced is the blood pressure study. And so he was kind of walking through, through that. And I never heard of that study before, um, which is kind of shocking because it is not, not only for upper cervical, but chiropractic in general. Um, I, I, it is a pretty profound um, pilot study. And so that was the first introduction. Um, and then he kind of started talking about some of the stuff that Dr. Rosa is doing and CSF flow. And one of my passions at that time, I had really kind of been setting up myself to, to go a little bit more of the functional neurology route, um, which I am still quite interested in. But um, I really liked the complex neurological cases. I had one of my big passions is brain health. Um, and uh, so that's kind of where I had been gearing towards. But when he started talking about um, just the CSF flow and um, compliance and migraines and things like that, I'm like, okay, okay, 
maybe there's something to this. Maybe I should pay a little bit closer attention. Um, so the next day, or maybe it was the next weekend, I think it was over two weekends, he brought us all into his office and um, actually brought a patient through care so that we could actually see what the assessment process was like, see the adjustment, and still way over my head. I'm a little confused, but he gets the patient. He kind of does his pre-checks, his posture, his leg check, gets the patient down, does the adjustment, gets him up, does his post-checks and says, okay, you're good to go. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, you barely touched him. I thought you were warming up the entire time. What did you just do? And so it confused me enough that I was like, I've got to dig into this a little bit more. Um, So I was coming back home, back to Calgary uh, for Christmas that year. And I just kind of said, you know, maybe there's something to this upper cervical work. Is there a Nuka doc in Calgary um, that maybe I could meet or shadow over over the holidays and going back there? And he's like, oh yeah, you gotta gotta go talk to my buddy, uh, Jeff Shulton. And lo and behold, he practices five minutes down from where I grew up down the street. Um, I had been going by his practice my entire life. Well, maybe not my entire life, but most of my life. And he would have Nuka and that's it. That was, that was the sign on the, at the time that was the sign on the outside. And I thought it was a martial arts studio. I had no idea what it was, but uh, I went and spent a day with him and Dr. Hoff and just the results they were getting with their patients. Everybody was just so happy to be there and so happy when they left and the stories I was hearing from the patients um, and to see them not adjust somebody um, was really eye-opening and fit a lot more with my philosophy of if we are actually doing our job and um, allowing that person to heal and build their resiliency, we shouldn't have to keep going back in and do the same thing over and over and over again. Um there should be some stability that's acquired. And so to actually see that in practice, uh, really kind of started to started to get the gears turning. And I was still a little, I, I'm somewhat adverse to change, which I don't think is super uncommon, but it was going to throw me off on a completely different trajectory of where I was planning on heading. Like, okay, well, this is, I don't know how to practice. I don't speak the language. Um, I'm going to now need to potentially look at investing in an x-ray machine if I were to start on my own. Like the overhead costs were were much more substantial than what I had initially envisioned. Um, and it totally threw the plan that I was going uh, going to be doing out the window. So I was kind of humming and hawing and I got back in touch with uh, Dr. Shelton a couple weeks after I got back uh, to school um, in January. And he's like, well, you know, if you're really interested in this type of thing, you should come at the time. Um, it was called the experience, the upper cervical experience. Um, if you can make your way down to Orlando, it's in two weeks. Um, we've got everything else covered. Come sit in. Uh, we've got some great speakers coming. It'll be a great weekend. So I'm like done two weeks. I'll figure this out. Got myself down there. Had a phenomenal weekend, saw, listened to a dentist who was talking about airway, listened to Dr. Rosa and upper cervical instability, heard about the diplomate for the first time, and I was sold. I was ready. I, I was entering, I think it was my T8 or my T9 at that time. And I remember asking Dr. Shelley, he's like, can students join the diplomate to learn more about this? And he was just graduating the first the first class. And I, he kind of got this look on his face of, well... Technically, there's no restrictions. Um, I don't think we've got anything like that. I suppose legally a student could join, but you should probably get some experience under your belt. Thank God I did. Um, Because again, I didn't know left from right and what to be doing, but that kind of sold me in on it. And I completely changed uh, the trajectory of what I was doing and uh, went full into the NUCA procedure. You and I have very similar, there's some similar themes in our stories. I mean, I got into, I took the Blair elective 13th out of 14 quarters at life. So it was like zero hour, right? I was already interning in an office doing nothing like I'm doing now, you know, and all that stuff. And so I think the the key takeaway there for, for students, if you're sort of like upper cervical curious, but you're not really like prepared to go all in or you don't really know what it's all about. And like, you just kind of, it's on your radar, but you're, you don't want to be limited, quote unquote, by it. I, I would say, do what Dr. Spranza did and get to some of these events and see what it's really all about. Because, you know, shout out to Dr. Johnson for taking time out of his life and time away from his family to show up on campus and to introduce you guys, you know, to these procedures, because it just doesn't always happen another way. And then to have a real world connection, you know, see a patient actually get managed. 
and and how that works in the real world is that's cool. And so, you know, there's a lot of docs that go out of their way to help connect students with opportunities. And sometimes that's what makes the difference. So it's, it's, uh, and the other thing I was thinking about as you're talking is, you know, I, I think a lot of times the perspective of upper cervical in the chiropractic community that even knows about it, frankly, is that it's reductionistic, right? That it's like, it's myopic and it's very limited in its scope. And then you, you learn what it's actually all about. And you're like, well, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? When you're talking about brain health and you're talking about like these known mechanisms and how, you know, forget just posture and leg length inequality, but you know, the, the health of the autonomic nervous system and the performance of the body and the neuroendocrine function associated, all that stuff. It's like, holy smokes, all of a sudden it goes from, you know, thinking that it's very reductionistic and it starts to open up a lot of doors of opportunity for patients to heal. And I literally had a patient I was texting some friends about the other day and she came to me with her, her chief complaint was infertility. And she, you know, was got rounds and rounds of IVF in the whole nine yards, right? And was like, I read somewhere this might help with hormones, you know, and, and we're, and so just the other day she came in and said, she's six weeks pregnant. And it's like, I think I adjust her atlas twice, right? It's like, these things happen. And if we have a reductionist view of how upper cervical care puts the head on top of the neck and then just creates less muscle tension so you don't have as many tension headaches, that's true, but it's not the whole picture. And and I think for a lot of people, when they start to connect those dots and go like, holy smokes, there's a lot more to this than I was either told or you know thought at first glance. I mean, get into it you know, and just see what it's all about. And if you do that and you go, yeah, that's not for me. Like it either doesn't jive with my chiropractic values or it's, you know, not the the practice setting I want to be in, or those aren't the types of patients I like to work with. That's fine, but at least have a well-informed understanding of the field, because if nothing else, then you create, you know, partnerships with other chiropractors that'll, you know, help your patients. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think um, you, you hit it uh, dead on. I, a lot of times we do think of it as like, um, it is very reductionistic or structural. It's like, okay, we're going to look at just literally the musculoskeletal component of it. But with what we're seeing, it's we're working in kind of the fuse box of the body. And there, the more that you dig into this area, at least for myself, the more I realize I don't know. And uh, you just, you, you can never stop questioning what's going on because like you said you could have someone coming in with fertility issues or issues that most people would think are seemingly unconnected to what it is that you do but if our nervous system which controls every other aspect every other cell in our body is not functioning properly um then the the effect of turning it back online and uh getting people's heads on straight for lack of a better better description um can be massive for that person um and you're, people may, this might not be everybody's cup of tea in terms of how they want to practice. But for me, I think that really just opens up the doors to collaboration. Um, mm-hmm. I do work with a couple chiro- full spine chiropractors and we look at things, um, uh, we, we approach different, the uh, certain issues through different lenses, but we collaborate really well. Um, there's certain types of things that I don't, I'll I'll admit I'm not, I don't have a huge pediatric practice, but I've got a great pediatric uh, practitioner that I send to down the street. And uh, she doesn't do a ton with say concussion or migraine patients. And she sends me her concussion and migraine patients. And so we've just developed a really good relationship. And um, I think for chiropractic as a whole, you want to have just that ability to communicate and uh, support each other. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. And I was just telling a patient who, you know, had a previous chiropractic experience that wasn't the best and, you know, has been getting good results with upper cervical, talking about, well, those other chiropractors, this and that and the other thing. I'm like, look, man, like you got to have the right tool for the job. And for this particular Mm -hmm. situation, they just didn't have the right training to handle it. And that's doesn't mean they weren't doing their best or weren't doing a good job, but it just there were some things missing, you know, in the assessment and the treatment of this particular issue that like make the difference if you have that that little extra bit of training. And so I think it's good to not, because especially as a young doc and like, I, I'm, I was guilty of this. Like you try to elevate your own image by belittling other people. And you think that if you, you know, point out all the flaws with someone else, that makes you look good. Spoiler, it doesn't, it makes you look like <laughs> a, a dummy. And it, you know, the thing is like, it doesn't elevate the image of chiropractic. And I think we can all do our part to, um, to do that. And, and we can all, you know, agree that there are people that aren't representing our profession well, and that's 
we're not going to change that by talking bad about them, mm-hmm. right? But we can put points on the scoreboard for the profession and leave each interaction that we have, leave folks with a more positive encounter with chiropractic. Like that adds up. And by the way, anybody who's listening going like, well, did you tell that lady you were, she was going to get pregnant? No, I told her what we were just talking about, which is I don't know for sure, you know, how much this is impacting your, your picture. There's a lot of other variables, right? But like you said, if we can normalize function, if we can find out number one, that there's actually a problem here and it is creating a stressful response in your nervous system, like there are known mechanisms. So there's, there's hope that that could make a difference. And, you know, we agree that like, we'll operate with the assumption that if you find something and it's worth, you know, it's worth spending some time working on, we'll do that, you know, for, for the sake of, of preparing the body. Right. And that's the conversation that we had was like, I just want my body to be as balanced and normal and healthy as possible as I'm going through these procedures, you know, and I don't want any additional stress to, to limit my success. And I thought that was a very wise, you know, way to approach the situation from a patient's perspective, just understanding, like, I just want to be in the best possible conditions, you know, physiologically for whatever the future holds for our family. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how you want to live your life, right? with the best possible chance of the optimal health expression, understanding there's a lot of things outside of our control. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if everyone picked up on one thing that you said there, but I wanted to highlight it is um, let's see if you actually have a problem that we can help you with. Is someone a good candidate for this type of care? Right. Um, Because sometimes I think we can, uh, get really excited about trying to help everybody with everything, but maybe they're either not a good fit for your practice or for what's going on, or maybe they actually don't have a primary upper cervical issue. And so um, I, I, I did kind of my, uh, a lot of my NUCA training and uh, internship and associateship with uh, Dr. Schulten. And he is fantastic at setting up um, kind of taking people through different screening procedures for determining, okay, let's check these boxes and let's see what might may or may not be contributing to what's going on and see if you would be a good candidate for what I can offer you. Um, and if so, is now the appropriate time or are there, is there a certain kind of socks in the shoes in the order of doing something that's going to optimize your outcome? Maybe we need to work on the dental piece in conjunction with upper cervical work, or maybe there's a vision imbalance that's also at play. And so sometimes you can even just act as the guide for the, for the person who's coming in so that they can understand what's going on in their body, where some of those imbalances are. And if it's in your office, fantastic. Fantastic, but maybe if you need to integrate with other practitioners, it really kind of opens up that door for interdisciplinary care. That's patient-centered care, right? And we, we hear <laughs> a lot of those, you know, the billboards, the Kaiser Permanentes do the commercials about we're patient-centered, but guess what never happens? That conversation where someone actually does a review of systems and does a thorough history and figures out how to help folks navigate decision-making with their healthcare. And I think that's one thing that upper cervical doctors do a really good job of. And a lot of that has to do with the way that we, not all of us, but but a lot of people like Dr. Schulten and yourself continue to invest in themselves and their education and don't become, you know, um, too narrow in their focus of, well, this is what I know and, you know, this is what I have experienced. But programs like the Diplomate ha- open doors and open our eyes and, and create a better understanding of some of these, you know, some of these ancillary systems and procedures that can help. And so um, give me an idea of your first experience as a diplomate. Like as we are going, you, you commit, you're interested, you're doing it, get those first few weekends under your belt. What, what's going through your head as you start in on that process? Well, it's kind of like you're drinking from a fire hose right off the bat. But I remember coming back from our the first weekend of the first year and think it was anatomy. I think we were doing anatomy. I believe it was anatomy that weekend. And I felt like I was riding high for a month. And it was just it. I, I'm a student at heart. I actually had a very, it, it was a bit of a rocky transition mentally, I think, for me when I graduated to all of a sudden, um, not having the structure that an academic program provided, and figuring out, okay, what am I doing with my life um, type of a thing? So part of the diplomate for me kind of felt that filled that void again and provided some structure and uh, got me back into, into a little bit of the academic thinking, but it also allowed me to um, just start exploring things through a different lens. I met a lot of people um, who practice all, all sorts of different uh, upper cervical techniques. 
again, with my background, I had really only been exposed to Nuka, um, had loosely heard of Blair, never heard of Nietzsche. People, people are saying like orthospinology and all that. And again, that's my own ignorance for, for not, not, uh, recognizing this. But, um, when people are kind of telling me about these things, I was like, okay, I need to learn more. And it just kind of opened up that thirst for wanting to wanting to gain more knowledge and figure, okay, how are we doing this? How did these techniques evolve? Um, if I'm looking at it this way, how do you look at that at a case? And it, just the conversations that happened in between uh, actual sessions, I think that was where some of the biggest value took place. Um, because you could actually get people's different, uh, different perspectives. You could dig into topics a little bit differently. If you're having, if you, you bring up a complex case that you're thinking of, um, coming back to the office on Monday is like, okay, well, what if I looked at this through a little bit more of an articular lens or what am I seeing here? Maybe there's something on imaging that I've missed, but now that I've, uh, taken, spent 12 hours looking at x-rays and CBCTs and MRIs, um, I'm going to go back w- through this and see if there's anything that's standing out to me. So I think it upped the, um, uh, intentionality, um, and focus of, uh, what I was looking for in certain cases, but also just opened up, um, different levels of communication, the way that I uh, would deliver information and educate patients. Um, I felt like I just was building more tools because people have some slightly different systems, different ways of educating people. Um, and you just learn different, different language, what resonates with you. And, uh, that was a big, from a practice building perspective, I think a big, um, factor in that, but from the academic, the knowledge perspective, um, it just kind of, kind of blew my mind right from the tar- uh, start of it. And, uh, it just kept me pumped all the way through. And just communicating with patients to your point, I think if you are a if you have an academic mind or you're kind of like a student at heart like that, and you're curious and you're a a lifelong learner, it's hard for you to communicate with patients in a way that isn't authentic with your personality. You know, I think a lot of us, like I bumped into that too, like different things I've heard and tried from other people or, you know, different scripts and things where it's like, this just isn't me, you know, like it's obvious that it's not landing because it's not authentic. And when you can communicate authentically and that your passion for the information comes through and you can communicate with folks about, you know, more aspects of their care that they're totally unaware of. Um, that's a huge value. You know, that's a huge value to have a relationship with a doctor like that. Someone not only that is willing to take the time to help you understand this stuff, but is like going out of their way to increase their knowledge. And uh, I think that's just, you know, one of the cool things about, you know, being an upper cervical chiropractor is what we have the opportunity to expose people to in terms of understanding of you know, what being healthy really means, you know, different ways to improve upon your health and how these bits and pieces of their body that they've had the whole time impact it and, and connecting the dots. It's like, how many times have we consulted with a patient and it's like, nobody ever talked to them about their injury history and those six Mm -hmm. concussions in the whiplash. And it's like, yeah, this makes sense. And I can connect the dots for you and help you understand why you're in the situation that you're in. Because if we have an understanding of that, now we actually have a path forward and that stuff is like, I get goosebumps talking about that because you see patients go like, finally, you know, it's almost like breathe a sigh of relief. Like finally somebody figured this out. And and even if the process of recovery is slow, they're anchored to, you know, those, they're anchored to those educational moments where it made sense and finally clicked. Absolutely. And when you can explain the why, or at least theorize why something happened, and like you said, give them that little bit of empowerment. When you understand what's going on in your body, as opposed to um, slapping on a, a really complex diagnosis that sounds really scary, when you can actually understand how you got to this position, potentially, um, and more importantly, how what you can do um, within your power to to improve your path forward. Um, the more that I I believe, the more that we understand what's going on, what's happening either with our condition or in our bodies, why we feel a certain way, we're going to find the better tools, more specific tools to help us a recover faster and then maintain that recovery. Um, It's coming from more more of a a place of knowledge when you're kind of left left in the dark or in the confusion um, and feeling lost and like you're being bounced around through practitioner to practitioner who can't articulate or explain what is actually happening to me. I just want to know why I feel this way. Mm -hmm. If you can answer that one 
question for somebody. They may not care what you're going to do to them in terms of treatment, but now they actually have an answer. Like Dr. Rosa says, a dignity of a diagnosis, but actually, I think taking it one step further and actually understanding what that means for them. Yeah. And, and, and you'd mentioned earlier, you know, as you've learned more, you realize how much there is to learn. And I think the humility of knowing when you don't know and communicating that to and going, you know what, you know, some of this stuff is uh, outside of my scope or outside of my area of expertise. I think there's a tendency for, for healthcare providers in general to feel like they have to be able to answer every question, right. And, and always have a clear explanation. And sometimes we don't, you know, and that's the truthful answer, but again, coming from a place of authenticity and, you know, of, um, caring for a person, right? A person caring for a person, you know, not a doctor authoritarian, authoritarianly, if that's even a word, yeah. you know, <laughs> pushing a patient through their treatment process. Um, but, you know, actually being, being a guide on the journey and, and being a human that can connect as, on a human level. And sometimes the right answer is, I don't know, man, like some of this stuff gets weird, but here's what I do know. And then you can explain that and you can work on that and, you know, help navigate. So uh, I do want to get into some um, into some nitty gritty details. Cause those of you mm-hmm. folks that have been to these upper cervical events have heard people like Dr. Scott Rosa speak are sort of familiar with some of the lingo and the terminology and upper cervical care will, will really gravitate towards this conversation, but especially the folks that maybe are a little bit less familiar. I think it's good to plant the seed and just get some of this information out there. And, um, uh, some of it has to do with the research that you that you did through your through your Diplomate program. Uh, so one of the things, just so folks know, the Diplomate and craniocervical junction procedures is the advanced you know Diplomate certification for upper cervical chiropractors, and and a part of that certification process is performing research. And you and your team of uh, researchers, you guys explored the reliability of the clavoaxial angle on cone beam CT. So CBCT is an imaging modality that a lot of us use. We've talked about that on past episodes. Uh, so if you want to get a little bit more familiar with that technology, but the clavoaxial angle is a line of mensuration. It's a measurement that's typically taken on MRIs, right? And helical CTs or hospital CTs mm-hmm. to measure the relationship between the structures in the cranial cervical junction. And just like any, you know, any measurement, blood pressure, like we were talking about before, there, there's a normal range. And we understand that when you're outside the normal range, that's bad things happen. And so I'd love to talk about a little bit about that clavoaxial angle and why you guys chose to study the thing that you did. Um, and, and first and foremost, like describe what the clavoaxial angle is and why you think it's important for upper cervical chiropractors to know about it. For sure. So, um, I was working in a group with uh, Dr. Jane Brewer, uh, Dr. Liz Hafer, and uh, Dr. Bill Lorden. And um, when we were kind of discussing different topics to to study, um, the clavulaxia angle, angle, I'm going to call it probably the CXA uh, moving forward, just so I don't get keep getting tongue-tied with it, but um, was one that we were all kind of interested in. Uh, we all do different, um, different techniques, uh, cross between orthogonal and articular upper cervical techniques. And so how we look at some of the structures in the, in the cranial cervical junction, um, this is kind of a unique angle from a lateral perspective that could help us understand, um, what's, how the head is essentially kind of sitting on top of the neck and how that might be impacting, um, ventral brainstem compression. So for those of you who aren't familiar with um, this measurement, um, the CXA is an angle between the clivus, um, basically a line drawn from the lower third of the clivus, um, from the spino-occipital synchrondrosis, if you want to get really fancy with that, down to the basion. And then it's connected with a line drawn along the posterior aspect of the axis. So from the posterior uh, aspect of the dens down to the inferior um, portion of C2 body. And so this angle, um, like uh, you said there, John, uh, there's a certain normative range that has been accepted. Usually it should measure between 150 to 165 degrees or so, um, give or take a few. Uh, Some sources will go down to as far as 145 being normal and some will say up to 180. When you go into normal flexion and extension, you can add on about 9 to 11 degrees with this. Now, this is kind of a unique angle um, because when we look at um, this through an upper cervical lens, 
we potentially, and we don't have, well, I'll preface this by saying we don't have clear data on this right now, but there's the potential that we may be able to influence these structures um, with our adjustments. We, we know we can influence the orientation of C2. We can know we can influence the orientation of the uh, occipital joint. And so what is the potential that we may be able to influence this angle? And the reason why we think that is important is that when this angle becomes more acute, this forms more of a kyphosis at the cranial cervical junction. So we know that there's the cervical lordosis, thoracic kyphosis, lumbar lordosis, all of that. But we often don't think of the CCJ as having a um, kyphotic curve to it. But as the spinal cord transitions into the brainstem and we start to see it embryologically kind of, there's a little bit of a kink that forms as it becomes the medulla, um, that's natural. But if this angle is really acute, then what we end up with is this greater kyphosis and greater stretch or um, stretch deformity effect of the medulla and upper cervical spine as it traverses over these structures. Now, things that can potentially create an acute clibalaxial angle are um, congenital anomalies like um, platyvasia, um, basilar invagination. However, potentially trauma, um, retroflexion of the dens that then leads to or uh, created by um, uh, ligamentous instability. If we're starting to get shifting of these structures in through here, that potentially can create um, some medullary kinking. Um, inflammatory disorders, so things like RA, uh, that too can create more panis formation, which can then um, uh, create more of this ventral brainstem compression. And so what we wanted to see with our study, there's, there's a lot of, um, I'm going to say more, more fancy, maybe more, more sexy topics to discuss with it once we get this baseline data, but, uh, cause we want to kind of look at it from the pathophysiology perspective, what's going on. Can we influence us with our adjustments, all of that, but we kind of had to lay the groundwork for it to even see, is this something that we can actually accurately and reliably measure on upright imaging? Because usually these are, this is an angle that's measured supine on either MRI or CT. Um, so is it relevant in upright imaging? Uh, can we measure it on um, CBCT? And for those of us who aren't using CBCT yet, or if it's not, um, uh, hasn't been uh, approved in your jurisdiction, most, I mean, uh, most hypercervical doctors are taking imaging. And I believe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe most techniques, regardless of your technique, you're taking at minimum uh, a lateral cervical neutral film. And so you measure this on that film. So this is something that is universal across all upper cervical techniques that can be looked at. Um, when we're looking at this, we wanted to see, can we compare what we're seeing on a CBCT to an X-ray? Is it accurate? And is it, uh, is it accurate? Is it reliable? And can it be reproduced not only um, by the same practitioner? So we looked at uh, these pictures multiple times. We were blinded, um, did a couple re uh, analysis. Uh, analyses of these different data sets. And so we're exposed to each image, image twice. And then um, uh, inter-examiner uh, inter reliability, can we accurately get, uh, get kind of basically the same measurement across practitioners? So I, we're waiting, we're still kind of waiting on, on the data. We've hit a little bit of a speed bump uh, with it. And uh, Hopefully, I was kind of, we were chatting beforehand. I was kind of joking that maybe we'll have it by the next next uh, upper cervical forum. But um, one thing with research is that it does take time, and there's a lot of lot of moving parts. Um, there's third parties, uh, things like that, and so unfortunately, it does take a long time to get uh, to get studies pushed through and to get things put out there. Um, but that's kind of the background of it. Yeah. And just to kind of summarize, because I was able to sit through the entire presentation, just to give folks kind of like the the quick summary. So as the name implies, and this is the thing about medical terminology, it's like it describes what it measures, right? The mm -hmm. angle between the clivus and the axis, the angle between the base of the skull and the upper part of the spine. And to acute, meaning if it's bending too far forward, that creates a lot of stress in the ventral brainstem. This is like the medulla, the transition area between the spinal cord and the brain where a lot of really important autonomic stuff happens, uh, the more that's bent, the more potential there is for, you know, issues. And the ranges are established based on imaging that we're not all using day to day, right? So we have this normal range, but we go, 
I wouldn't do my chiropractic analysis with a patient laying down. We, we think that it's important that they're in a weight-bearing position for taking certain measurements related to the alignment of the spine. So I thought it was really thoughtful that you guys said, well, you know, a lot of us are paying attention to this angle. Can we actually, you know, can we actually measure it and use it with our, our imaging modalities? Because that's really not the way these normative ranges were established. And it's really not the, the way that the imaging is typically, or that these angles are typically used on. So as, as eager as we all are to get to the next step, which is, we'll tell everybody how upper cervical care helps improve the clavicle axial angle and all these pots and autonomic systems. And, you know, we get so excited to take it to the next level. Like you said, sometimes that foundational work has to be done to say, you know, are our imaging modalities actually a useful way, you know, to measure this? And, and are those normative ranges, you know, applicable to weight bearing imaging, you know, and a different type of imaging. So um, I think it's really thoughtful to do that. And it makes sense. Uh, and then from there, you know, if you can establish the reliability of it, you know, then you can build on that with, okay, we know that this is a reliable indicator of X. So now we can test those outcomes, you know, with that indicator. So, uh, it, and the way that you guys went about doing it was take a bunch of different images, you know, that were obviously anonymous, randomized, and, and just, measure the angle on all the images a couple times each. And so that means that you each had a chance to, you know, compare your results against yourself. Can I reproducibly get this same measurement again? But then also across practitioners, can we get a similar measurement? Can we come up with the same measurement? So inter and intra examiner reliability is important with this stuff because, you know, for a lot of like line drawing analysis, you guys have very precise points to mark, you know, to get your, your angles for NUCA measurements, right? And if people are just kind of haphazardly marking the films and not getting the same, you know, not getting the same uh, vectors, it's going to be hard to compare outcomes. So it's important that we understand exactly how to do this and that it's consistent across practitioners so that when we get results, we know what to do with them. So that's it. Yeah. If uh, if we're all over the board and if it comes back that um, none of us are consistent, well, then then we have to kind of figure out, okay, is this is this still something that is going to be useful um, to, to what it is that that we're hoping to achieve with this or useful, a useful radiometric for upper cervical doctors to be paying attention to? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so would you um, can you think of a couple of cases, you know, where you may have had MRIs on these folks and, and they had an acute clavoaxial angle? Like what are some of the, the presentations of folks that are, are dealing with this sort of situation? Yeah, so um, I can think of one off the top of my head, and uh, she's got a um, combination of EDS or Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, so hypermobility, uh, POTS, um, so a lot, lot of dysautonomic symptoms going on. Um, she does have an acute clavulaxiangle, I believe it was in the 130s, high 130s. So when we're looking at this, and we kind of stated the the normal range, um, when this angle gets too small, um, and if it's causing some clinical correlation with the brainstem compression, it may be deemed surgical. And so typically what we found in the research is that um, anywhere from 130 degrees or less is often um, considered for surgery. And sometimes these cases are also uh, in association with potential Chiari malformation or tonsillar ectopia. So just lots of crowding around the foramen magnum in general. And so, so this person, um, she, like I said, she going back to her, she had a lot, she's got a lot of, um, autonomic, uh, dysfunction that's taking place and, uh, she's not considered a surgical case. Um, unfortunately with a lot of these, uh, with, POTS, um, uh, dysautonomia in general, um, people with these types of conditions will, will search for years for an answer to figure out what is going on yeah. and um, are often told too often, um, I think that it's in your head. It's a functional imbalance or it's an anxiety. You need to manage your stress. And that's where she was at. She was kind of at her wit's end um, when she came in. And so we sat down. Uh, she had had a bunch of imaging done. And so I reviewed the imaging. And uh, that was one thing that popped out right at me. And you could see on on the on the MRI just, just how kinked things were. Um, we got her NUCA films taken and uh, there, there was an imbalance. There was an issue going on uh, on there. And so 
I kind of said, walked her through what was going on and said, okay, well, there, there is a piece here. Now, is this going to fix everything? Um, there is, there is some shift in the actual anatomy itself. And when we look at the clivalaxial angle, um, it's a static measurement of a dynamic joint complex. And so we're measuring it at a moment in time. When you go through flexion extension, it's going to move. And so not only was there, um, stress at the CCJ, but coupled with hypermobility, stability was going to be a bit of an issue. And so mm. we've been working now for just over a year and um, she has responded quite well. Um, stability is still a little bit um, challenging for her, but it we're, we're seeing uh, ongoing progress with that. And this is something that um, this would be a case that we have actually considered sending her down to Centeno and uh, looking at doing some Regenix, uh, regenerative injections there just to see if it'll help with the stability because her pot symptoms have clear have cleared up significantly um, uh, with some of the migraines that she was getting. She, she's had a lot of positive results, but it is a little bit precarious in terms, in terms of the stability there. So that's um, one where when we look at it and I, just for fun, I kind of like to just uh, get a post measurement on, on, on x-ray and see, am I making a change in the, in the CXA? Are, are things moving there? To what extent is it significant? I don't know if it changes a degree. Does that, is that actually statistically significant? Um, it's hard to say. I, uh, from my measurements, it had, it had changed about a degree. Um, but, uh, I don't know that that was necessarily the, the end all be all of what was going on with her case, or if we were able to get her into a little bit more of a functionally balanced state that, um, her body could, uh, kind of optimize its, optimize its function, thrive a little bit more effectively at, and reduce the stress at least a little bit on the nervous system there. And it's a three-dimensional body, right? And the spine moves in three dimensions. So if you think about, you know, this is measured on a mid-sagittal slice on an MRI or on a lateral cervical x-ray. And if you take your NUCA films and your nasium is looking at it from a different plane and your vertex is looking at it from a different plane and you're finding distortions in those planes as well, now you've got it hit in every angle, right? You've got, you've got problems three ways. And if you are dealt a short straw, you know, when it comes to your anatomy or your connective tissues, and you've got this type of problem, that's one thing. But if you can, as a, as an upper cervical chiropractor, improve on those other angles and reduce some of that stress from a, you know, from a vertex and nasium perspective, whether or not, you know, you have you know, dramatically changed that clival axial angle, you've helped in those three dimensions, Right. And so, again, like from a functional baseline perspective, these are the things that are within our control as chiropractors and, you know, understanding how to create stability is a multi, you know, faceted thing with these people. So I think go back to a previous episode I did with the hypermobile Cairo, Taylor Goldberg. We talked a lot about setting expectations with these people and communicating with them that you're not fixing this, right? That your, mm-hmm. your job is not to fix their connective tissue disorder, but it's to create improved quality of life, you know, more functional progress and to be a part of the team and folks that are going to be working to get the best quality of life. So uh, go back and listen to that episode. She's not an upper cervical chiropractor. Admittedly, when we talked, you know, told me that I don't know much about upper cervical, except that I've heard that these chiropractors tell these people a lot of crazy things that are not true. Uh, so I think it behooves you to be mindful of, of the situation from, you know, really a functional, physiological, anatomical perspective and, and be very clear about, you know, what, what you think you can help with and where you think there may be limitations. And these people aren't expecting you to fix that, you know, to, to fix all this stuff. They want to feel better. They want to do better and have, like you said, a better understanding of, of what's going on. So go back and listen to that episode. And, and there's a lot of overlap with these types of conversations. So. Awesome. And I, I would just kind of um, add to that in that uh, when we can understand the anatomy and speaking specifically about um, the CXA here, uh, if I'm seeing that maybe someone isn't measuring within normal limits, they're not in surgery. So, so they're, they're in my office. Um, it may it may alter what I would recommend for supportive care. Um, So I might, uh, when we kind of review maybe what they're doing exercise wise or things like that, if they've been given a lot of like chin tucks and they're doing, doing these, these kind of uh, different neck exercises, we might 
kibosh that because if you're taking an acute angle and you're constantly putting that head inflection, um, that may or may not be beneficial for them. We also, that also kind of opens up the door to things like, okay, ergonomically, am I going to, should I be spending all day looking down at my phone? Um, and how can we kind of make some of these lifestyle adapt- adaptations that are fully within their control um, and in turn may actually help their stability uh, and progress and care moving forward? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's wise, you know, wise advice for folks. If if you've got patients like this and you go back and you start, you know, eyeballing that, those images and looking at like, yeah, that looks like it's pretty kink there. Even if you don't know all the, all the ins and outs of how to measure this stuff, you know, go back and look at, we all learned how to draw McRae's line and Chamberlain's line and all these things like look for the platabasia, look for the, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? The superior migration of the odontoid. Like, look for these basic things and and get a few other measurements and just try to get a better handle on, you know, is this situation, you know, potentially impacting this patient? And then be mindful of like, get again. We talked about this earlier, but like, get a little bit out of your. Well, this is my technical training, and this is what we tell everybody, and this is what we recommend for everybody. And just think about the person and the situation and the anatomy, and and think about the functions and the dysfunctions, and. And then maybe modify your, you know, modify your recommendations to be appropriate, you know, for the situation. But yeah. I found like, I found myself doing this. It's like, well, this is what I was trained to tell everybody. You know, this is the 20 day patient education script, right? Like you tell them this and then this and then this, but then it's, you realize in upper cervical practice, you got so many different kinds of people that it's like, how can you tell everybody the same thing? You can't and you shouldn't. And so you know, again, educate yourself, you know, learn more about these situations and and be willing to modify your approach if necessary. Yeah. It just comes back to that individualized care. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Speaking of, um, you know, the way that things have changed for you clinically, what, what else has, you know, shifted since you've gone through the Diplomate program? Like what other things in your practice, clinically speaking, have evolved as you've gained more knowledge? So, you know, I, I think part of it, I think a big piece of it is taking time to educate people, um, kind of slowing down a little bit more so, um, especially for, for those complex cases. Um, and when I say educate them, uh, I'm not expecting them to all leave and be diplomates. Uh, they, they don't need to regurgitate everything that, that I know, but it's taking the time to help, like we said earlier, help them understand a little bit more of what's going on. Um, and from uh, more of a communication standpoint um, has given me more confidence when I go out and I'm speaking with their practitioners or mm-hmm. I'm sending reports um, or even just trying to get out in the community and, uh, and network. Um, it's given me more confidence in that, uh, in that aspect of knowing, okay, I, I, know this area. And uh, I I can talk your ear off about it if you want. But um, then people kind of start to recognize, okay, this is your niche. And then I, you get to know what they do. And you start to kind of build that uh, interdisciplinary community. And then you, the patients will start to actually see you as that guide, because uh, you can recognize, okay, what's going on with you, I'm going to send you to this person to support your care. And when they come back and that person is saying similar things to what you're telling them and uh, that story is being um, repeated, then um, the patient feels a taken care of, feels like you've communicated their case effectively, um, but uh, also feels like they're working with a team and they're not having to play messenger owl, um, trying to repeat everything that they're doing with you to someone else. <laughs> and that's so hard, especially when you're not feeling well. And we got to remember these people are not feeling well and they're not living well and their body's not performing well. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how often they're the ones that have to be the one to figure it out. Google searching, going online, going to all these different doctors. And I hear this for patients all the time. Like I just didn't stop searching until, and it's like, what a shame. I, you know, I always say good for you, you know, for taking, taking the responsibility and being an advocate and like not giving up, but shame on everybody else that didn't know to, to help them not have to do that right? Like this is not your job as a patient to survey the whole landscape of healthcare and try to understand in, in the middle of a crisis where you should find help. So I appreciate and applaud you for, for making those connections and making it easier for, because clinicians get frustrated too, because they don't mm-hmm. know what to do with these people. So it's worth it. And it's a, it's a worthwhile uh, use of your time to create those connections. Well, I think it can be all too easy to kind of get stuck in your, your own silo and, uh, 
either either take the approach of I help everybody with everything. And if you're not responding, well, something's wrong with you type of a thing. Or um, put the blinders on and you just keep going, whether it's working or not. Um, but you don't you aren't looking at the bigger picture. And so I think what's unique with upper cervical work and with the knowledge that I've gained with the diplomate is that it really is a niche. And um, I know that I can't help everybody with everything. I can, I can do a good job with a piece of the puzzle and maybe that'll make a really big impact. And that's what that person needs, but it's a piece of the puzzle. And, uh, I'm more than happy to act as the guide and coach to get people to where they need to be. But, um, it's kind of working as that, taking that team approach to get that patient across the finish line. And I've heard a lot of diplomates, uh, basically, you know, describe that same sentiment, which is, you know, I've actually slowed down. You know, I've taken more time to either explain things or to check things or to modify procedures. And I I think that's great. You know, and like patient education means different things to different people I've come to find out. And, And I think that a lot of people think of it in terms of like, how do I talk these people into staying, paying and referring? Right. And like, that's kind of a lot of the, you know, where a lot of that's coming from. But when you're trying to help folks understand some complex things related to their specific situation. Um, that's a different conversation and a little different tone to the conversation. And I, I respect the diplomates that have taken the time to slow down and to, and to make that knowledge applicable because so what, if, if you have it all in your head and it never gets out into your practice, it's kind of like just another good thing for you. But I think where it really matters is for, for the people that can't get the help that they need other places. Um, and, and it's, you know, I don't, I'm not a run around in practice with your hair on fire, going a million miles an hour, seeing as many people a minute as humanly possible. Like that's not my speed. I, you know, I really resonate with this community, the upper cervical community. And I know there's that too, but like for the, for this reason is like, I'm like you that way. It's like, I think it's important with these people that don't fit into that model that they have somewhere to go and get help. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of create that safe space. Yeah. Awesome. What are you most excited about in practice these days? I mean, like there's so many new areas to explore. There's so many new things to learn. There's diagnostic equipment, there's techniques. You know, what are you, what are you fired up about lately? Oh man. Well, I, um, just recently started my own practice. Um, I was an associate uh, for about uh, five, almost six years. And so over the last couple of years have branched out on my own. So um, there's a lot of new, just kind of learning things going on on the business side of things. Um, I, so that, that I would say just kind of getting, getting creative, well, kind of working through the creativity of the systems, the procedures, kind of figuring out what is working, what isn't working. I remember day yeah. one, I thought I had all, all my form. I thought my forms were all looking great. I was using this online system after the first day. I was like, this is crap. This is taking way too long. I revamped everything. So um, there was a lot of trial and error right at the beginning. And uh, now we're, we're, we're in a good flow with things. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I get excited about is um, right now, just uh, community, community development, community awareness, uh, just getting out into my community, meeting people um, and forming, forming the, those interdisciplinary uh, connections. Uh, one thing that uh, I'm in, I'm in a smaller community now um, as opposed to Calgary, which is um, a a bigger city. And so there's a lot of, um, uh, the dynamics are different. So it's a little bit more of a rural setting, um, lots of word of mouth. um, But uh, that's, that's a little bit more, more my, my kind of style, my pace. And so I've started to form um, a really neat uh, interdisciplinary club. So we've uh, we've got a few practitioners we meet every uh, six to eight weeks or so and basically just have a nerd out session and uh, talk about different things like this and what we're doing in practice. And uh, that in turn has actually started to um, create more uh, more referrals amongst us. And so I'm going to kind of pivot uh, likely to, to form more like a grand rounds type thing where we can kind of talk about complex cases and uh, create um, more of a um, 
collaborative healthcare environment in the Airdrie community. Um, so that's been something really cool and exciting and to bring the upper cervical awareness to that um, because right now I'm the only upper cervical chiropractor in the area. And so it's just introducing people to what it is that we do and uh, having the, having the, uh, the, the passion to, to get out there and talk about brain health and talk about uh, optimal body function and why, why we should, should all be uh, existing in gravity in a stress free state. So I love it. I, I tell patients all the time, like you got two things working against you, no matter what that's gravity and time, you know, and the rest is the rest is, you know, you got to fill in the gaps on that. But, uh, and it is such, it can be that simple. And as, as heady and in, intricate and, you know, detailed as we can get with this stuff, I think when it comes down to it, you kind of made the comment before, like keeping your head on straight, as simple as that is, there's a lot of truth to that, right? It's like, that's a better way to operate physiologically. It's a better way to live your life. And if you want to get into the nitty gritty details with people or not, there are people that like, they could care less about any of this stuff, right? They're like, look at my legs and make me feel better, right? Like, or whatever else you got to do. But, um, you know, across that spectrum, um, I think that there's, there's opportunities to meet needs, you know, and I think upper cervical docs were, we're a little nerdy about this stuff. And sometimes we might overshare the details with the people that don't really care, but uh, especially with the providers, that's why I like provider networking. It, it lets you talk on that level and like get into that zone, you know, in a way that is, um, you know, mutually beneficial. Oh, so. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's always nice to having gone from a group practice to now being out on my own, you kind of, you kind of lose a little bit of that um, ability to, to, to have those nerd out sessions essentially. And uh, it's, it's nice when you can kind of meet like-minded practitioners and uh, be able to just, uh, just express yourself and be yourself and not have to worry about, okay, am I talking too technical right now? Um, are their eyes glazing over and is none of this making sense? Um, or are they just laughing at me because they see I'm enthusiastic, but they have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and a lot of times, you know, young providers, especially like they can relate to, they can relate to the challenge of being a, a healthcare provider and a small business owner, you know, and all the different hats you have to wear, you know, doing those two things. So I think there's a lot of interesting conversations to have as you make friends in, in your healthcare community too. So awesome. Um, any last words of encouragement? I think we'll start to wind down and, and I'd encourage folks that have listening and this, this piqued your interest um, see what the ICA council on upper cervical care is doing, you know, see what events are coming up look at what the new organization has to offer in terms of conferences. I think you guys do a couple a year, right? We do. Our next one, I believe, is in November, the first weekend of November in Minneapolis. Okay, so you've got that to go to. You've got the Blair Conference. You know, all these other technique uh, organizations have their own, you know, opportunities to come and learn and collaborate. And it, what's interesting to see in these last couple of years is that there's there's a lot of folks from other techniques that are speaking at conferences. So Blair will have a NUCA doc. The NUCA people will have an ortho doc. You know, there's like the orthospinology people are having a Blair doc. It's interesting to see how we're starting to actually like integrate a little bit and not not to belittle each other and say, well, here's where you're wrong with all the stuff. And what I have to say is right. But just to just to continue, you know, continue the networking and the collaboration. So I think that's pretty cool. So make the rounds, you know, go see all these different um, techniques, seminars and get an idea of what's out there and what, you know, community and technique resonates with you and then just go for it, learn it and do it. So. Um, that being said, any last words of encouragement or advice that you'd like to leave with the listeners? You know, I think uh, just just keep testing your your comfort zone. Uh, push it, push it every now and then. Uh, even step out of it, and uh, that's really where the growth happens. And so, whether that's um, looking at the diplomate program or um, even just like you said, going out to some of these these conferences, we do sometimes kind of get uh, get pigeonholed in maybe our own technique or again where we're familiar with people but go and explore and see what's out there because that's just going to further your growth and uh, you never want to stop growing hey we just wanted to say thank you for listening to atlas of chiropractic we really hope you enjoyed this episode go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes Leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having. And last thing, check the show notes for relevant links, contact info, and resources that we mentioned during this episode. 